Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Back in June, I had to head out to the East Coast to cover the Memorial Cup with the Hamilton Bulldogs in it. Went through Pearson Airport. It was a disaster. Flights canceled, bags lost, days out in the East Coast without any luggage before it finally showed up. And I wasn't alone by any stretch. It was it was. It was a crazy time. Things were still going on, and the airport was a mess, and everyone was talking about that. Well, we are now six months later on from that, and I'm reading a piece in the Toronto Star today. You can read it in the spec as well. Uh, The headline is, This is ridiculous. Exasperated travelers tell of luggage chaos at Toronto's Pearson Airport. I mean, we've got the stories about airlines that can't get people home and in the States, Southwest over the holidays having to cancel thousands of flights, but closer to home at Pearson Airport, which is where many of you listening, if you're going to go away this winter, are going to go. It seems six months down the road, the problems that were there are still don't seem to be fixed. I don't understand how that can possibly be, how an industry can possibly be dealing with the same stuff all this time later. I want to bring in Gabor Lukash. He is uh, the man behind Air Passenger Rights. He is uh, uh, someone who speaks about this and deals with issues with passengers and customers of the airline industry. Gabor, thank you for this today. Good evening. So, as I say, six months ago, I was at Pearson and it was a mess. Uh, I mean, my luggage was lost and I was not the only one by any stretch. There were piles of bags and everything. And I thought, okay, this was temporary, Gabor. This is going to be, you know, figured out really quickly and then everything will be some kind of back to normal. Clearly, that's not the case. It's clearly not the case. And I forewarned the public and decision makers back in the summer that unless some firm actions are taken or should have been taken then, then this may become the new Canadian norm. And here we are six months later, and it's happening again. And I can say now just the same thing, unless some measure, drastic measures are taken now to rein in the airline industry and to start enforcing passenger rights and to create actually a regime which makes it easy to enforce passenger rights, well, this is going to be the new Canadian norm. All right. I don't usually ask two questions at once, but let me do that. What, what is causing this? And then to your other point, when you say you said this was going to happen, what are the things that could be done to fix it? There, the causes are um, twofold, at least in the immediate way. One uh, cause is that the framework is so vague, so complex, so consumer unfriendly that it is very difficult to enforce it for passengers. It's not obvious and clear in a given situation whether compensation is owed to passengers. The other source of the problem is the lack of enforcement by the federal government. Under the law, airlines can be fined up to $25,000 per passenger per incident per violation for most of these violations that we are seeing now. Yet, these powers have largely fallen into disuse. The federal government is not finding airlines in the vast majority of the cases. A few cases where they do, this is a pittance of $200 per violation, which is, you know, less than uh, 1% of the maximum amount. So overall, it is more profitable for airlines to break the law, to violate passengers' rights, than actually enforcing, than complying with them. You asked me the second question, which is what is the fix? That's a more complex question we uh, submitted last month to the House of Commons Transport Committee, a 29-page report with clear recommendations on how to revamp the Uh, Canada Transportation Act to largely harmonize Canada's regime with the European Union's gold standard, strengthening enforcement, 
And uh, that way one can uh, at least catch up with the backlog. Okay. I'm to the backlog of 30,000, actually 31,000 complaints the Canadian Transportation Agency has. Okay, so I'm not even going to get into today the whole idea of the, the flights that were canceled or the people who were stuck down in Cuba or wherever. Well, that's a discussion for a different day. I'm just talking about the luggage right now and that. So just to simplify this, if six months ago they knew at Pearson through the airlines that they were having all kinds of problems because people were having bags backed up and everything else. That's one specific thing. How can even that not be fixed? When you know what the problem is, you can see the bags piling up, you know that this is an issue, and here we are again. In any other industry, Gabor, if you knew there was a problem six months ago and you didn't fix it, people would say, what is wrong with you? Well, people should be saying what is wrong with you in this case as well. And what is fundamentally wrong is that although the law says that airlines are responsible up to at least 2300 Canadian dollars for damages incurred by passengers whose baggage is delayed, in many cases those uh, compensations may not be paid out, and even that compensation may not necessarily uh, motivate airlines sufficiently to deal with the problem. There have to be very significant fines, very significant uh, penalties, to tilt the balance of profitability from just hoping that the problem goes away, hoping that it blows over, uh, to actually dealing with the problem when it occurs for the first time. Do you believe that if an airline, pick any one, do you believe that if an airline that was having these problems was slammed with high fines one time, that that would be motivation enough to get the problem fixed? Um, if it was made clear that other any other airline that does it would be facing the same sure. thing, then it would certainly create a significant incentive. Uh, now, when we talk about airports, the, the, when we talk about baggage, there are also subcontractors. And, and uh, one thing I would support is to provide airlines with more means, perhaps more of firm legislation, to go after some of the subcontractors and possibly the airport authority uh, if, if the, the subcontractors in any way contribute to their incurring expenses. The, the, my goal is not to punish airlines. My goal is simply to say, solve the problem and ensure that, that there is a financial incentive for everybody in the um, chain of uh, operation to do their very best. One of the things that's really interesting about this story that's in the star um, was that when people were trying to find out what was going on, the airport was saying it's the fault of the airlines, and the airlines are pointing at the at the airport, saying, "Well, no, it's their equipment that isn't working, or whatever else." And you, so you talk about, you know, you've got these baggage handlers. Let's say, well, they work for the airport, as I understand it, but it, it, like, it, no, it, no, no? It, 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 it doesn't work like that actually. No, okay. Uh, you see, uh, from a from a operational perspective, it doesn't matter who their their employers are. When a baggage handler is handling a baggage for a given airline that baggage handler is acting as an agent or a servant okay. for that particular airline. They are kind of subcontractor situation. So whatever they do and it's wrong, the airline is responsible. It is vis-a-vis the passenger. Now, the airline can turn around and go to the airport or whoever, whoever the airline hired to handle the baggage and tell them, we had to just pay out $200,000 in fines or in compensation to passengers. Now, this was because of your fault because you didn't arrange your affairs properly. I want you to reimburse us for that. And that's how the normal operation should be. Well, and for, as far as passengers are concerned, the airline is their address for all complaints. But there is one other issue, and that would be, I would think, that if the federal government did what you suggest, and I, I see your point exactly, that, you know, let's make a, let's make a point here. Let's give them a, a little slap to move things along and be motivating. 
But would the airlines not just, they're not going to absorb that loss. Then you and I or anyone else that buys a plane ticket, they're just going to jack the prices up to cover that so that ultimately, are we not going to end up paying for the penalty that they get for the mistakes that are made? No. And the reason is that even if you take it the most extreme situation, which is a completely monopolistic market, which we don't have a monopolistic market entirely in Canada, but let's assume there's only one one provider of a particular goods or services, then uh, when they start jacking up the price, the demand starts dropping. And what is going to curb the airline, even I mean, what prevents airlines from now doubling all ticket prices? What prevents them is that, that it would just result in significant drop in demand. So it would, it might make the price a bit higher, possibly. It certainly will, however, incentivize airlines to become more efficient because if they jack up the prices, the demand drops and overall profits are going to drop because your revenue is price times demand. Then it doesn't matter how expensive you sell your goods if there's nobody to buy it. Same thing with services. Excellent point. Uh, listen, we love having you on. Uh, you always got great points. Gabor Lukash, uh, you can read uh, airpassengerrights.ca is the website if you're interested in this kind of thing. Uh, it's a fascinating website. And Gabor, we always appreciate you taking a few minutes. Thank you for doing this. Thank you very much for having me. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. You uh, certainly have been hearing or following or keeping up on what's been going on uh, with the Buffalo Bills player who was injured the other day. We're not going to talk specifically about that, but there is something that I did want to get into, which I have found fascinating for a long, long time. And this incident has kind of crystallized it. And that is when something happens that is a tragedy, that is a disaster, that someone's been hurt or whatever else, we always see people say thoughts and prayers going to so-and-so or thoughts and prayers to the people of wherever. And, you know, I never know really what that means. It seems kind of cliche in a way, because I I get that the thoughts are there, but are people really praying or is it just a cliche and does it really matter? Let me bring in David Haskell. He's an associate professor of religion and culture at Wilfrid Laurier University. Uh, David, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate this today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I don't know that it matters, but it, it does seem like a kind of a strange sentiment or a strange saying because i don't know that half of it is being fulfilled does that make any difference well i mean if we look at the numbers uh pew uh research out of washington they they looked at the number of people who pray daily in the u.s and it's around 55 percent. so it's actually pretty common now what we have to uh then compare that against is the perception or the portrayal of prayer in our pop culture. Uh, There was a guy, Scott Clark, a few years back uh, in the early 2000s, who looked at the portrayal of religion in uh, primetime TV, and he found that only about 2% of of characters ever engage in any kind of spiritual activity. When you compare that to the American population or even the Canadian population, that's widely uh, underrepresentative. Uh, the other side of it is if you look at reality shows like uh, Survivor or these other ones, you see a lot more activities like prayer. And that's because when you actually get real people doing their real things on TV, they represent the real population. And a lot of people pray. And and not only that, they believe in the power of prayer. As, so do you, as Dan, Dan do, you, did. do you then believe 
that when people say that, do you believe that it's more than just a, a rote statement or a cliche? Do, do you believe people more than maybe we think are actually doing that? Yeah. I, and again, I, I try to move away from the anecdotal evidence and just see what the survey data is saying. And uh, some of the most recent survey data out of the U.S. is saying that at least 55 percent of people are, are praying regularly. Um, if you look at other data, about 70 percent of Americans, and this moves beyond just uh, Christianity, they believe in the power of prayer. And that is to say they believe that miraculous healings happen. So what we see in this prayer that uh, Dan Orlovsky did on on uh, his sports show was was actually representative of a majority of Americans, believe it or not. And let me jump and, in for a second, just because yeah. to explain what this was. Dan Orlovsky is a is a an analyst, a football analyst on ESPN. And yesterday, while they were talking very somberly about what's been going on, um, he he stopped in the middle of his commentary and prayed, and not like a. a you know, now I lay me down to sleep kind of thing. Like he prayed, prayed and the response on social media to that. And that's partly why I've, I've brought you on. Oh, I want to talk about this. The response has been unbelievably favorable, but also people seeming to be really, really surprised that somebody would do this. And that seems to me to be part of the question I asked. And part of the reason I asked the question, we don't see this ever. And maybe that's just a discomfort with any kind of public expression of prayer. But I just wonder if we're uncomfortable, a lot of people with anybody praying, period. It's it's interesting because there is a taboo against doing things like prayer in public now. And a lot of that has been brought about through what's called political correctness. And the interesting thing is that people still do it it's just we don't see it in our popular culture. Again, referencing that study where only 2% of characters, 2.5% of characters on TV are committing some kind of uh, religious act. And and so for many people, this is natural, right? Um, and what we see is, is the skewed uh, pop culture narrative. And primarily it's because, and again, other people have looked at this. Uh, um, I can't remember. Powers was one of the guys, but anyway, without going into the exact study, Lichter, Lichter and Powers. So anyway, these guys looked and they said they found that the people who are actually creating the dominant culture narratives, whether it's TV or movies, they're exceptionally anti-religious. So their view of the world gets put out there. And this helps to create a taboo because people think they, they look at what they see on TV and the movies and they think that nobody else is like them and it's quite isolating. But in reality, as I say, the data shows that people do this all the time. When we see it publicly, like uh, Dan Orlovsky did, suddenly there's a disconnect because we're not used to seeing it in our pop culture narratives. But uh, it is often the case that this is happening. I mean, people are religious believers out there. Uh, yeah, and, and as I say, it was the, people could go online on Twitter, on Facebook, wherever, and, and find the video of this, but then find the comments. And there are, as I say, I, that I've seen the overwhelming majority were like, wow, that was, you know, impressive and heartfelt and appropriate and all those kind of things. But there are also those who say, there is no place for this on the public stage. He should not have done this. Um, he, th this was out of line. This was, you know, it, it, there's no place for this kind of religiosity when you're talking about a situation like this. So th there clearly is a divide here. And a and I, I would argue probably a very strong divide. There's great passion on both sides about whether this should be done more 
and as you say, represented more in popular culture, or whether it shouldn't be there at all. Yeah, and you know, even getting to uh, Orlovsky's prayer itself, he was pulling his punches a bit. So I researched the guy, and uh, he is a devout Christian. And so Christians, they tend to be praying in, especially when they're evangelicals, they pray in Jesus's name. Uh, Orlovsky, whether it was intentional, I think it was intentional, he pulled the Jesus name. And he didn't, he didn't close with Jesus name. He closes his prayer with uh, something like, oh, oh, we lift up uh, Damar Hamlin's name in your name, amen. And uh, sometimes we see this as a tip to political correctness that um, a Christian person will avoid using the name of Jesus. And and so to that extent, he was still playing into the taboo that's out there. Do you think, though, that something like this happens and gets the kind of, as I say, generally positive social media play? Do you think this happens just because of the circumstance? So if if there's something else that happens next week and someone goes on TV or wherever else, and praise and it's not quite as shocking a moment as we see a guy maybe or almost die or whatever on a football field does it not play as well does it get more blowback is it is, is this only getting the positive play it is because we are all so shocked by what we saw absolutely yeah you've hit the nail on the head the reason that this is getting the positive reviews that it is uh is because no one disagrees that we want this young man uh, Damar Hamlin to be well. And, and so any kind of action toward that, any kind of positive sentiment is going to be received positively. But if you saw somebody else praying for something that, that wasn't a life or death situation, well, then people are going to come out, especially those who are opposed to organized religion or religion generally, they're going to come out full force against it. What if he had been Jewish or what if he had been Muslim or what if he'd been some other religion and prayed in North America, would that have also re received the same generally positive views or would that have made people uncomfortable? Well, again, we, we look at what Orlovsky actually said, and his was a completely generic prayer. He, he uh, made sure that there was no reference to explicit Christianity. So if someone did that, if they were an Orthodox Jew or a conservative Muslim and making that same kind of prayer, and it was uh, still generic, then I think that they'd get the same kind of positive reception. And I, I think that's the cleverness here. Uh, something else that uh, is interesting, the, the co-hosts were also on board, right? So already you have this unified message. It wasn't just uh, Orlovsky going rogue. Um, he, he begins his prayer by saying, uh, maybe it's not the right thing to do, but it's on my heart to pray. And his co-host says it is, right? Mm -hmm. And and then we saw his female co-host. So this is his other male co-host, but his female co-host, she's happily bowing her head. So it was that unity among those uh, journalists, those broadcast journalists, that I think also set the tone that other people would see. It's like we're all in this it, together. It does, and and we got to run. But it does it does seem to me anyway as though if people are going to say thoughts and prayers we are very good with the thoughts unquestionably anyone who posts something on social media saying thoughts and prayers has clearly given their thought already 
if we're going to say that, surely there has to be, you would think people be open to the idea of the end of prayers because they've called for those. But I, I don't know. I don't know that that would always happen. Uh, David Haskell from Wilfrid Laurie University. Always appreciate your time. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. So if there is a topic that people have been talking about the past few days, I mean, obviously what happened with the NFL player, that's one thing, but the other one far lighter, but I'm telling you, not necessarily bringing out lighter opinions on this one. Rolling Stone magazine came out with its list of the 200 greatest singers of all time. And 200, you think, okay, that's going to cover a whole lot of the people that you would think would be on the list. And it did. But there are a lot of people, the Seleniacs, the Celine Dion fans who are up in arms. They are taking to the streets because their favorite Quebec chanteuse is not on the list, not among the 200 greatest singers of all time. Now, this has raised all kinds of discussion about, well, what did they mean? Do they mean best voice or best songwriter or best front person or best performer? Well, let me bring in Brian West. He is uh, the afternoon host, just got off the air on Y108, joins us now. Brian, how are you today? Hey, I'm good, Scott. Thanks for having me. Thrilled you can do this uh, because, look, I, I, I'm there is a big part of me that thinks Rolling Stone is really good at these kind of things in just trolling people. Make sure you don't include one or two or you throw one or two in such a wacky place that they do exactly what we're doing and everyone gets bent out of shape or talking about it. Is that what's going on here? I, you know what? I'd, I'd have to agree with you on that. I think they do this on purpose because uh, I, you know, looked through this list a couple of times and uh, there's some that are on the list that I went, what? And there's others like Celine Dion who is not on the list. All right. So I, I am not by, by admission. I am not a huge Celine Dion fan. However, I do recognize for sure the success she's had, the fandom she has, the voice that she has. Mm-hmm. How does she not make a list like this? What what are what criteria would you have to put into place to say best singers and not have her here? Well, I mean, it's obviously not awards because she's what I think a five time Grammy Award winner. So I guess that has nothing to do with it. <laughs> yeah, you know, and uh, like they said, they said straight up to keep in mind, it's not a greatest singers list. Or sorry, it is the greatest singers list. It's not the greatest voices list. And I don't even know what they mean by that. Because, I mean, uh, to be a great singer, don't you have to have a great voice? Well, apparently not. Because number 15 on the list is Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan. And there's, I mean, if it was the greatest songwriters list, sure, have him on there. Um, But I've seen Bob Dylan in concert. And, you know, people get really mad at me when I say it's one of the worst concerts I've ever seen. (laughs) Because I don't even, I have not seen Bob Dylan in concert. I've seen video of him performing. Even if you were to break it down to, okay, best singing performers list. I don't know that what I've seen, you would say, oh yeah, you know, he just moved me with his performance. No, like I said, one of the worst concerts I've ever seen. And people send me hate mail when I say that, but but I've seen a lot of concerts and his was boring. I, I mean, another person on the list is Courtney Love. I mean, she's way up there at number 130. But when I think great singers, Great vocalist, Courtney Love does not come to mind. Well, what about Ozzy Osbourne? Ozzy's also on the list, exactly. Kurt Cobain, fabulous songwriter, and he he, he changed music in a way with his alternative voice, and I think that he what he did was really cool, but I don't know that he's a great singer. 
so uh, th this is a question. So as we do this, and I want to get back to this in a sec, but there, there, uh, there's been a proposal or, or something that people, I've heard other people throw this out before. It's not an original idea. And they say, look, in the last 20 years or so, we've had a bunch of talent contests on TV, American Idol or America's Got Talent or The Voice or whatever. And they say a lot of the people who have been the greatest performers, the most successful performers, Bob Dylan, Neil Young, Ozzy Osbourne, all, would never have got a second look if they'd been on these shows. So the, it shows mm -hmm. that it, it, it demonstrates, I guess, that you don't need to have the perfect voice if you can put it all together. But again, and, even with that, I still wonder, okay, but what makes then a great singer? You know, you're, you're absolutely right with that. And, and I want to also point out that often some of the people who make it um, the biggest in the music industry don't win those competitions. They come second or third or fourth. Right. And those who win don't. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, when I, I know a lot more about the rock music, I, like you, am not really a Celine Dion fan, but I know that she has a fantastic voice. Um, it was nice to see Freddie Mercury was quite high on the list at number 14, because when you look at the harmonies that that guy could do and, the, you know, the singing that he put behind Queen, it was amazing. And, and yes, he's on the list. Chris Cornell of Soundgarden is another one on the list. Robert Plant. These guys had great voices. But um, some of the other ones, I don't understand it. Let's go to Freddie Mercury for a second. I'm glad you brought him up because, OK, some people said. Well, Celine Dion and, and others, but she's not on the list because this isn't just purely vocal talent, as you say. It's not the best voice, but it's all the things put together. Well, if you're doing all the things put together, I defy someone to tell me how Freddie Mercury isn't at least in the top three. Has there ever been a better frontman than Freddie Mercury? Exactly. You, you, you hit the nail on the head there. He did put it all together and... Uh, I mean, he was number 14 on the list, but you're right. He should have been at least top five or, you, like you said, top three. Another thing that's very puzzling about this, and again, I, I acknowledge, and for people just tuning in, Brian, Brian talking to Brian West from Y108, our sister station, um, I acknowledge, as you do, this list is probably designed to do exactly what we're doing. They intentionally are poking us, but they did this same list or, or a version of it in 2008. Mm -hmm. And there are some things on here that I, I'm wondering if, the definition of what a great singer is has changed a lot because you mentioned Robert Plant, lead singer of Led Zeppelin. In 2008, he was number 15 on the greatest ever singer list. Now he's number 63. He's <laughs> fallen almost 50 spots at a time when they're not even performing. It's not like his voice has gone bad. <laughs> right. Uh, they're not changed. even, how, how do you drop, how, how are there 50 people in the last 15 years that have come along that are better than Robert Plant? Mm -hmm. I, I agree with you there. And, and I wanted to mention also somebody that I saw on the list was Billie Eilish, the pop singer Billie yes, Eilish. Yes. Um, an interesting sound. You know, she has that song, uh, Bad Guy. She has a very uh, toned down voice and has an interesting sound and it's done well. But is it a great voice to be on this list? I don't know. Well, OK, let's throw out another one. Janis Joplin, 2008, yeah. when they did this list, was number 28. And I, again, I would say, depending on even, no matter what the definition is you want to give of this, if it's front person, if it's performer, if it's can sing, if it's unique, if it's memorable songs, I mean, whatever you want to pick in here, she was number 20, she's now number 78. She's fallen 50 spots, just like Robert Plant, basically. Mm. Um, Mick Jagger was 16, went down to 52. I, I just, I understand that they there may have been some people who for reasons of stylistic reasons were left off the last list but boy oh boy this suggests almost that 
somehow in the last 15 years, what makes a good singer, the definition has changed. And maybe they do that. Maybe there's new people making the list over at Rolling Stone and they have, because they, uh, you mentioned uh, like originality and influence and that's what they say mattered most to them. All right. Orig okay. So originality, I mean, if originality is the thing, then I, you know, some of these make some sense. Um, yeah. However, I don't care how original Bruce Springsteen is number 77 on the list. I mean, we talked about Freddie Mercury. Mm -hmm. Is there another performer who is renowned for their live performances as Bruce Springsteen? You're right. He's the boss, man. He's known for it. I don't know. I, I, I find this all, as I say, I mean, I, I'm taking issue with the fact that Getty Lee doesn't even make the top 200. And I mean, we know that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Rolling Stone magazine mm -hmm. aren't exactly fans of Rush over the years. That's been a, a constant bugaboo. But nonetheless, I mean, it, it's it's what what would you I mean, if you were doing a list like this and you, you've acknowledged that you're a rock guy, that's, that's fine. Mm -hmm. What who would be in your list? Who would be in your top three or four? Uh, well, Chris Cornell, for sure, from Soundgarden. He had an amazing voice and from Temple of the Dog and the other uh, things that you took part in he he's had number, he's number 80 right now by the way he yes he's he's he is on the list but i think he should be way higher than that like i said i am a rock fan uh so freddie mercury uh chris cornell and i think robert plant when it comes to rock guys should be my top three uh yeah i mean neil young makes the list again i love neil young um uh, who was uh, the one uh what's his name I, i'm drawing a complete blank here um uh canadian poet sings hallelujah uh um Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, man. I'll think of that. I can't believe I'm drawing it, but Leonard, uh, Leonard Cohen. Cohen. Okay. I mean, if Bob Dylan has a voice of questionable musicality, all right, no one's questioning his music writing or his lyricism, but uh, Leonard Cohen might be the only person whose voice is less musical than Bob Dylan's. Right. I would argue. I mean, again, great poet. Not sure that I would count him as a great singer. Mm -hmm. somehow on this list i don't know uh so i mean if you were doing something like this if you were coming you said who your people are what what then become the criteria for you what are the criteria for a great singer is it just the tonal quality of the voice or the technique or what what becomes a great singer's attributes well i see i can't sing so i really like i can't sing at all <laughs> <laughs> like i'm terrible so when i see somebody who has a voice like some of these people uh, you know, I, I think the, the tone of your voice and just having the ability to hit those notes and do harmonies, that's huge. And I think that should be the top thing that they look at when they're talking about greatest singers, the ability to sing. You know who, I don't know if he made the list and I don't think he did. And I, I can't go through the whole list while we're talking here, but again, we're talking about uniqueness and front man and those kind of things. I don't think Brian Johnson from ACDC made the list. And again, I, I would suggest that he is one of those voices that the second you hear his voice, even if it was, even if he was filling in for a singer on another, you know, group, you would instantly say, Oh, that's the guy from ACDC. Yeah. I don't think he was on the list. And I don't, I, I don't remember seeing Steven Tyler of Aerosmith. Was he on the list? Uh, Steven Tyler was not, uh, he was number 99 in 2008 and he dropped off the list also dropping off the list, which uh, some of these just shock me. Uh, Don Henley gone, um, mm. Jim Morrison gone. I mean, he was number 47 in 2008. He, so I, again, I'm not really sure what 
what changes that makes this happen or how our tastes perhaps have changed. I do think that one of the things, and I don't have an issue with this. I think this is a good thing. We've broadened our, our sensibilities or broadened our horizons. There's, there's many more um, hip hop or African-American influenced black singers on here. I think that's a good thing because heaven knows so much of our great music has come from black performers and, and mm-hmm. somehow there seemed to be a shortage of them on the last list. That said, I, I can assure you that in no world of mine would Beyonce be number eight better than John Lennon. That uh, I'd have to agree with you there. I mean, she's a great performer, but does she have a great singing voice? It's good and it's really good, but you're right. John Lennon had everything. Yeah. I, I don't, uh, as I say, I, I think that they are, uh, I think they're having a little fun with us here. And I think somewhere <laughs> at the Rolling Stone magazine office, they've said, oh, who can we leave off the list that will get people most upset? And as I say, um, if, if you've ever, uh, uh, I don't know where I was when I saw there was a Celine Dion concert going on nearby. And um, uh, we call them the Celineacs. You, you can tell who is a Celine Dion fan going into the concert. Much like a few years ago, I was going into Toronto. My my family, we were going to see you 2 Oh, yeah. And they were at Rogers Center and at Air Canada Center, as it was called then, right next door, Marilyn Manson was playing on the go train. You could tell who was going to which concert. <laughs> I'm sure you could. Yes, <laughs> there was little crossover in appearance. Uh, <laughs> listen, it's uh, it's a great topic to have Brian West from Y108. You can catch Brian every weekday uh, before we come on. You can catch him in the afternoons if you're not listening to Scott Thompson or whoever else here on on. Uh, 900 CHML, just, you know, stay in the family. Why 108 CHML, whatever. Uh, Brian, really appreciate you doing this. Thanks for doing this today. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's fun to talk music. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.